If you take your Bibles and turn with me or your device uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 9, I want to thank Josh and Emily for doing that. I, I was made aware of that song in the midst of this study on David. And <clears throat> so when I heard it, I thought, we've got to have that song sung. And I'm so grateful that they would do it along with Will. Thank you. Um, and Josh did such a great job of talking about the story. I didn't know that I have much more to say. But you know me, I'll try. So I have a confession to make to you. I love The Godfather. The movies, The Godfather, right? Anybody else? I know they're violent and I know all this stuff, I get it. But it's a great movie. I, I, I enjoy watching it periodically. And in the second movie, Godfather 2, a young Vito Andolini is nine years of age. When his father is murdered by the Sicilian mafia boss, Don Cicci. And the older brother, Paolo, who is a teenager, he, he swears revenge on his father's death. But in the middle of the funeral procession, <clears throat> Paolo is killed also by Don Chichu's uh, men. And so having lost her husband and her oldest son, she takes nine-year-old Vito to the mafia boss, the mother, and she begs for his life. And she says to Don Chichi, she says, uh, he's only nine years old, he's dumb-witted. Wouldn't you like for your mother to say that about you? He's dumb-witted. And she says, he never speaks. And the mafia boss says, it's not his words I'm afraid of. And if you've seen the movie, you know that she then puts a knife to his throat in order for Vito to escape. And then she's killed. But with the help of neighbors, Vito escapes and is sent to America. And 21 years later, he returns to Sicily to avenge the deaths of his family. And he walks up to Don Chichi and he kills him. It would be commonplace for any ancient ruler to eliminate the threat to his throne especially a family member of the preceding royal family, someone who would be in line previously, but now is no longer in line to the throne. As long as a spark of that life remains smoldering, then the threat is still present, a clear and present danger to that king. But David was a very different king. Verse 1, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, which had to have gotten David's attention. 
there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emiel in Lodabar. Verse five, then King David sent and brought him to the house, him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel of Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, first time we see his name here in this part of the story, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage, and David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, behold, I am your servant, and David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, all that belong to Saul and all and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons, Ziba, and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants and then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servants or servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the, the David's table like one of his own sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for, the, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. What a way to end the story. Almost like for effect. So that we don't forget that he was crippled. There's a central word that's used in this story. It's used three times. It starts in verse one. It's the word that is translated in our language as kindness. I, I paused each time I read it as we read through it, kindness. But it's so much more than what we typically mean when we use that word. You see, when we think of being kind, we think of being sweet, nice, unaggressive, kind. But kindness here is way beyond all of that. If any of you have been a part of this church for any time at all and knew our former pastor, my father-in-law, Brother John Duke, he spoke on what this word is translated into kindness on for about three years. You think my series are long. <laughs> Brother John, he set the bar very high. That word kindness is translated from the Hebrew word hesed. I'll just say hesed from now on, because I'm afraid, well. <laughs> Gotta be careful when you're clearing your throat. So hesed, he spoke on that for, for several years. Some of the most powerful messages you would have ever heard. 
It's the most profound Old Testament word used to describe God and to reveal his nature. Yet we have no single English word that adequately describes hesed. It's an incredibly transformational word. It's used over 240 times in the Old Testament to reveal the very essence of God, his nature, and to reveal to us his eternal love towards us and that we are to live in that love towards him and one another. The best we can do in translating this word hesed into English is to cobble together a catalog of words that somehow help us understand the multifaceted nature of such a complex Hebrew word. For example, we use words in the English language such as steadfast love, compassionate mercy, loving kindness. We can't even use one word. We've got to use double words to add to the meaning for us to get the concept. Loving kindness is used so many times in many translations that it's now just put together as one word. Loving kindness. And if you have the New American Standard, that's maybe what yours says. Loving kindness is used a lot. It's also a reference to goodness and graciousness and faithfulness and trustworthiness and covenant love, maybe the most profound loyal love, godliness. So it takes all of those words and a few more to translate one Hebrew word, hesed. And yet we just read this story and it just says, kindness, okay, I want to be kind to somebody. We teach our kids how to be kind, how to be nice. Don't cause any stirring, don't cause any ruffled feathers. But this kindness is so much bigger than our children being kind one to another. Hesed is the idea of love in action, and it, and it expresses persistent and unconditional kindness, tenderness, mercy. It's a covenantal relationship in which God pursues us with love and compassion. It's hesed, God's trustworthiness and loyal love that is the centerpiece of the Ten Commandments, of Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. It is at the center of the relationship God has with Moses and with the children of Israel. And that's why in Exodus 34, when God's presence is passing by Moses on Mount Sinai, God proclaims his hesed. Exodus 34, 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, this is the Lord proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed and faithfulness, keeping hesed steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And hesed is conveyed throughout the Old Testament. There's so many references, as I mentioned, it's hard that we could 
even get a a survey of all of them. But one of my favorites is from Isaiah 54.10 when the prophet says, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my hesed shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Why, even in Micah 6.8, where we use this passage oftentimes to see what the Lord requires of us, It's used in that verse. He has told you, O man, what is good, Micah 6, 8, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, that's literally hesed, and to hesed, not just love, and your version may say love mercy, not just to love mercy as if they're two separate things, but it's loving kindness, it's hesedine, if you will. It is to do what God is, to embody his nature in us. It's not just to do justice, but it is to hesed and to walk humbly with our God. Hesed is also very much the theme of David's story. You can look at it throughout his whole story, and we've been looking at the life of David. We see it. In so many encounters, like as we've already mentioned, the relationship that he has with Jonathan, Israel's crown prince, who decided to not cling to power or prestige or position, but to embrace David as God's chosen king. Do you realize what it was costing Jonathan to see David after he slew the giant and to love him as his own soul? It meant that Jonathan was foregoing his future, his career path. What everyone would have assumed for Jonathan, he was choosing to lay aside because he had a hesed kind of relationship with David. When David's life was in danger by Jonathan's father Saul, David made this request of Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20, verse 8. Therefore, deal kindly. That's hesed. It's literally, you could say it, do kindness to me. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. And likewise, a few verses later, Jonathan asked very much the same thing of David. He says in verse 14, if I am still alive, David, show me the hesed the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and, and do not cut off your hesed, steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. When David became king and Saul and Jonathan were dead on the battlefield, He commended the people of Jabesh-Gilead for their hesed, their loving kindness towards Saul and taking his body and burying him. He said, or it says in 2 Samuel 2.5, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this hesed, loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show Hesed and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. 
God himself communicates hesed to David. We talked about it last week in the covenant that David and God, that God made with David and that David wanted to build for God a house and God said to David, you're not gonna build me a house. I'm gonna build you a house. And then he goes on to talk about his hesed never departing from the son of David whose kingdom would be established forever. There's a direct connection from David and the hesed of God all the way through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the king whose kingdom is forever. And throughout all of David's writings, we see a thread of hesed woven in the very fabric of David's story. So many variations and versions of it in the Psalms, but I just picked a few. Psalm 23, six. Surely goodness and hesed shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 89, one, I will sing of the steadfast love of the hesed. I will sing of his hesed forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And when David sinned with Bathsheba and killed her husband, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, Psalm 51.1, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your hesed, your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So you see, when David says he wants to show kindness to anyone left in Saul's family, it's so much more than him being nice. It is so much more than him being sweet. David embodies Hesed because he's been enmeshed by it and he's been immersed in it and he's been enthroned because of it. He remembers the covenant that he made with Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father. He remembers it like it was yesterday. And he asked finally upon his reign over all of the unified nation of Israel. By this time, he may have been king of Judah at least seven plus maybe 10 more years. He could have been into his reign 17 years and then it dawns on him. Is there anyone? Is there anyone that I could show hesed to? The steadfast love, the kindness, the mercy, the loyalty, the covenant love, the, the loving kindness toward someone that is a descendant to Jonathan, my friend. And there is one. Not just someone, there is one. Actually, there's more than one. He has a son. We don't know about him quite yet. We find about Micah as we read on the story, but Mephibosheth is the one that Ziba brings up to David's account. Mephibosheth, his name, there's a lot of controversy, but most think that it came to mean shame. Mephibosheth, shame. 
He bore this name of shame everywhere he went, and he bore this disability. He was crippled, dropped by a nurse at five years of age, like Josh said earlier, because she was fleeing and trying to save him and rescue him because his dad and his granddad were now dead. And so she was trying to spare the heir, grab him and run, and she trips and falls, and both of his feet are broken. And with no ability to help cure such a broken bone, he grows up crippled, lame, unable to move, unable to work. So he's got a name that means shame. He's got legs that don't work. And now he's living in a place called Lodabar, which means barren place. Wow. A crippled man who's been living in a barren place, whose name means shame, and the king says, I want to see you. You got to know that Mephibosheth is thinking, this can't be good. I mean, he's been hearing the stories all of his child age and adolescent age. And at whatever point, people have been telling him things that are horrific about the way his family is no longer liked or loved or honored. He's probably been told stories how horrible David is and how he treated his uncle Ishbosheth, how he made... His aunt returned to his marriage bed, even though she had been given to another man. He's heard all of these horrific stories, and now this one wants to see me? That could only mean one thing. He wants to kill me. And as Mephibosheth prostrates himself before the king, referring to himself as a dead dog, not just a dog, a dead dog. You can't go any lower than that, not in the Israel culture. It is, it's low to be a dog, but when you're dead, which is also an abomination, a dead dog is pretty much the worst. And he refers to himself as a dead dog, and he's prostrate before the king. He's shaking and afraid. And what comes out of the king's mouth? It had to astonish him. The king, with this gentle tone I'm believing to his voice, calls him by his name. Mephibosheth. Such a personal, kind thing for the king to do. It's intriguing to me that Mephibosheth's name is used seven times in this story. And it's almost like the shame and victimhood is being wiped further away every time it's used. Eugene Peterson writes, Mephibosheth, a personal name. We can't love in general. We can't love by categories. We can't love by decree or legislation. We can love only a named person who has a past, a present, and a future. Mephibosheth. You ever heard the Lord call your name? You ever heard him say in love and hesed towards you? 
your name? He's saying it. He knows you by name. He calls you by name. He knew you before you had that name. And nothing that you've experienced or been diminished in this life keeps him from knowing your name and wanting you to hear him say it. And then David's next words are almost as profound as the fact that he used the name. He says, do not fear. <laughs> it's amazing to me how many times we have to be told that in the Bible and in our lives. Fear controls so much of the way we live our lives. Such words, do not fear, often precede extraordinary promises made to those who have powerful reasons to be afraid. There's so much in life to be afraid of, especially those who have more power than we do, those that have more advantage than we do, those that can hurt us in some way. Will they hurt us? Will they exploit us? Will they abuse us? Will they use us? Will they get rid of us? We have to be on our guard. We have to defend ourselves. If we don't fight, who will? If we don't protect ourselves, we won't be protected. And so we grow defensive and we grow inward and we grow scared and afraid because we're gonna not be taken advantage of even though they're trying to. Life produces fear. We get dropped when we're five and we come up lame. We get fed stories that are not true and we have this victimhood, this hostility towards people around us. We have a, a veneer that's covering this broken garbage self that is so twisted and distorted and we can't know what side is up and what side is down. And so life produces these broken things in our lives and we find ourselves crippled and lame and in Lodabar, a barren place. And our name has come to mean shame. And then we get called to the king's court into the presence of God. There's so much to be afraid in life. Can we trust God? Of course we can't. If God was really God. He wouldn't have let all these things happen in the first place, we say to ourselves. Life produces fear so that when we come before God, we also meet him with skepticism. We're not so sure that he means us good. He must be out to get us, to punish us, to destroy us, certainly to take away our freedom. Our story is not that different from the story of Mephibosheth. It's my favorite David story. And I have a lot of favorites. <laughs> like my kids, they're all my favorites. I love the story of David and Abigail. I love the forgiveness story of, of, of David when he sinned and God restores him. I love the story of David and Goliath. Who doesn't love that? But this story... This story is my story. It's your story. 
We come to God in shame from a barren place, crippled by sin, broken by life, and God's hesed, his loving kindness towards us, his loyal, covenantal, steadfast love, never shaken, comes and calls us by name. And if you think David was kind towards Jonathan's son, let me tell you about my king. He's even more kind. We're given a seat at his table. We don't belong there. We're broken. We're full of shame. We come from a barren place. We have no usefulness on our own. But it's not about us. It's about his covenant love that says, I want to show you my steadfast love, my loving kindness, my faithfulness, my generosity, my tenderness, my mercy, my hesed. We're given not only a seat at his table, we're given abundance in provision. Things that didn't belong to us were all of a sudden returned to us because God says so. Fields that we never sowed into. Produce that we never harvested. We're given all of a sudden a blessing that we never worked for. All because God is a covenant keeping and hesed producing God. So he gives us a seat. And then he gives us a field. And our disability? It doesn't keep us from being in his presence. Our brokenness, he says, this is where you'll find healing. Come, be with me. No reason to keep us from his presence because we're lame. In fact, it's in his presence where we find the way where there was no other way. He brings us to his banqueting table. His banner over us is love. We are crippled without Christ and he picks us up right where we are. He chooses us and he rejoices over us with singing and he meets us in our mess and he restores us to himself. It matters not the kind of life you've lived or what side of town you live on. It doesn't matter whether you have money or not. It doesn't matter how people see you. Maybe they look up to you. Maybe they look down on you. Doesn't matter. Because the Lord is calling your name. The Lord is speaking your name in love. It's not a harsh tone. It's a gentle, loving kindness tone. That I might show kindness. He is summoning you and me into his presence. Listen to his voice. It's a gentle voice. He's calling us by name. And he's saying to us, don't be afraid. He uses our name. He says, don't be afraid. I got this. You come sit at my table. Today and forevermore, we will sit at his table. He is shedding his grace upon us. Let us come and sit and dine with him. 
by his grace, we can become whole and clean and pure because the blood of Jesus makes us so. Today, the story of Mephibosheth points to us. Let's respond to him.